listening to the Hooked on Learning Podcast, where we discuss all things related to continuous improvement. And now to your host, Jesse Marka. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Hooked on Learning. Today's topic is crew resource management, and crew resource management is important as it relates to risk management and risk mitigation. So crew resource management comes from the world of aviation, and in aviation, their acceptable loss is what? That's right, zero. They have zero acceptable loss. It is not acceptable to lose an airplane. It is not acceptable to lose a passenger. So... The purpose of this class is really to go further than any other fire service crew resource, man- crew resource management class has gone before. And if you remember back, we had the opportunity to attend a crew resource management symposium that was held uh, right across 8 Mile there in Novi. And there was a lot of good information, but I felt like it could have gone a little bit further in terms of the why uh, crew resource management and when would we implement crew research crew resource management, and how are we already using crew resource management, or how could we implement it if we wanted to implement the program. So during this presentation, you will not only receive a, an overview of crew resource management, but you will also learn why, when, and how we are already using it, and if we're not maximizing it, how will we maximize it. Now, crew resource management is more than a concept that was developed by aviation and the military and adopted by the entire aviation industry. CRM is the very mechanism that fire service leaders must adopt to maintain effective operations before, during, and after an incident. That's right, I mentioned that it is on risk management, but it is also on risk mitigation. And I'd like to start by going over the basics of crew resource management and why it exists and where it came from. So in the 1970s, there is a string of of very high-profile airline disasters, and these disasters came at a high cost. Uh, The cost was not only in the financial cost of the airplane itself or the financial impact to the airlines, but in the cost of human passengers and human lives. And as you can imagine, as the perception evolved and the perception changed to, am I safe on an airplane? Passengers started to take notice of this and think, man, maybe I will take the boat or the train or my car. So in the 70s, there were uh, three flights in particular that really stood out and became kind of the impetus behind why crew resource management came to be. So the first flight was Eastern Airlines Flight 401. This flight was from JFK in New York to Miami and at the time this airplane this particular aircraft was considered to be the most technologically advanced and sophisticated passenger jet of the era and that's significant because one would assume that the most technologically and sophisticated aircraft of the time would allow us to go faster and further and that is true however the plane uh, and all of the aircraft at that time were susceptible to uh, incidents because of one particular factor, and that was the human factor. So Eastern Airlines, I mentioned they were flying from JFK to Miami, and on that approach to Miami, they realized an issue with their landing gear, and it had to do with the light bulb that can, 
that ver verified the landing gear was actually down. So on their approach to Miami, uh, they contacted the tower and advised them of the situation. The tower put them in a holding pattern, told them to maintain 2,000 feet on their altitude, and the plane began uh, basically a fly around of the airport to determine whether or not that landing gear was indeed down. So the captain of the aircraft, aka the pilot of the aircraft, advised the co-pilot to look into the light bulb located basically on the dash in the cockpit, pretty much right in front of the co-pilot. At this time, he also ordered the flight engineer, whose job is to monitor different flight systems, to go into the belly of the aircraft to determine whether or not they could, he could visualize whether or not the uh, landing gear was indeed down. So during this time, the captain asks the co-pilot to put the plane in the autopilot. The co-pilot obliges and puts it into, co -pilot, or into autopilot and begins to work on the light bulb located on the dashboard. During this time, the captain also decides to uh, assist with the light bulb, and as he reaches over to uh, finagle the light bulb out of its housing, he unknowingly and unbeknownst to everybody else in the flight crew nudges the flight controls and begins a descent of basically 100 feet. Um, so gradual decline in their altitude. Eventually there is a uh, an alarm that sounds, of course, to the flight engineer station, which he is not near because he's visualizing whether or not the aircraft uh, is uh, ready for landing with the landing gear down. So over time, the captain is basically task-saturated, so task-saturation, too much going on, loses the big picture, and as a result, as the aircraft gradually descends, the co-pilot suddenly says, wait, what's happening with the altitude? To which the captain says, nothing's happening at the altitude. We're at 2,000 feet. And uh, a very, very, very short time later, the aircraft crashes into the Everglades, um, causing multiple fatalities. So that's 1972. Fast forward to 1977. We have a small island, um, a small airport in the Canary Islands by the name now by the name of Tenerife. So this is known as the Tenerife Air Disaster, and it's uh, still of major historical importance because it is still the most deadly airline disaster to this day. 583 people were killed that day. So we talked about proximate cause and root cause under the art of risk management. We said that, you know, surface level, some things are pretty easy to fix. But when we dive deeper into the problem, we realize many, many, many contributing factors that ultimately led to this situation. So the first thing that led to this situation is neither one of these aircraft are supposed to land at Tenerife Airport that day. There was a terrorist event unfolding in Europe, which caused several airlines to reroute their flights until that terrorist situation could be mitigated. So two 747s end up at the Tenerife Airport off um, basically in the Canary Islands and super low visibility. So Murphy's Law was in full effect that day. And what happened is uh, they're using the runway for takeoffs and landings. They tell one of the flight crews that is uh, next in line for departure to take the one, two, three, third, third, 
third taxiway to the uh, runway that is being used that day. The flight crew of that 747 acknowledges the message. However, the marking system at the airport doesn't exactly facilitate anyone knowing where the third taxiway is. So, as the flight crew prepares to uh, taxi down that third taxiway, there's some misidentification and they actually take the second taxiway, not the third. This is important because it gave them much less time to actually take off in their aircraft because 747 requires a little more distance than your average plane. So, the second uh, taxiway, they hold, they announce that they are ready for takeoff, and the tower responds back with something really interesting, and that is the message of, okay, which is not a standardized communication in the world of aviation. So if you guessed that, you were right on. With that being said, the co-pilot then verifies, this is flight blank, blank, blank. We are now ready for takeoff. No response from the tower, so the flight crew already behind decides to power up the engines and proceed down the runway. Now, as they power and speed down the runway, out of the fog emerges their uh, worst nightmare, and that is another 747 that had already landed. So in a desperate attempt to uh, avoid disaster, the pilot of the 747, as it speeds down the runway, pulls back on the flight controls, noses up the aircraft, and boom, disaster. Uh, they strike the other aircraft that had already landed. 583 people are killed. And it's boiled down mostly to communication, uh, not being on the same page with the tower, not being on the same page with the other flight crew, and the tower being, for lack of better terms, oblivious to everything that was going on. Last, uh, certainly not the least, uh, disaster of real historical consequence is 1978 United Airlines. Again, this flight took off from JFK and was bound for Portland. On their final approach to Portland, they put the landing gear down, and the right landing gear basically um, reacts adversely. They hear a loud bang. The, con the flight uh, itself, the aircraft itself, basically uh, moves adversely, and they're unsure whether the landing gear is indeed down. So this captain had a, a similar yet different approach to the f captain of the Eastern Airlines flight. This captain was a little more heavy-handed, was not super willing to take feedback from his crew, Order contacted the tower, went into a fly-around uh, of the airport to determine what was wrong. Basically, what happened was a hydraulic failure. The landing gear free fell versus a controlled um, lowering of the landing gear. Ironically, the landing gear did lock into place and was sufficient for landing. However, as part of this, the light bulb did not illuminate, and uh, the flight crew was trying to figure out what was going on. So during this time, it was brought to the captain's attention that they may not have enough fuel to continue flying and monitoring whether or not the landing gear is down, to which the captain basically said, listen, brother, I'm the captain. Don't talk over me. To which, as one would imagine, as time goes on, the plane does what? Yep, it runs out of fuel. So as that aircraft runs out of fuel, it proceeds to crash and kill many people. So after these three incidents... People kind of got hit to what was going on, and that was, doesn't matter how nice the aircraft is, doesn't matter how technologically advanced or sophisticated the aircraft is, there is one thing that is still causing this, and that is human error. So, human error was the root cause 
of what was going on. So the problem with the aircraft, we refer, refer to those as threats, and then the errors by humans is what really caused the actual incident. So in 1979, a group of researchers from NASA uh, did some research and discovered that crashes were due to a lack of interpersonal communication, poor decision-making, and a general lack of leadership skills. With this in mind, NASA developed crew resource management as the vehicle for improving these skills, thus reducing human error by improving crew coordination. So at the NASA Industrial Workshop in San Francisco, there was a report released on resource management on the flight deck, which is now known by everybody as crew resource management. And the definition of crew resource management, now that we've talked about it so long, is the effective use of all available resources, human resources, your hardware, and your actual information. And it was designed to not only identify, but also remove human error from future equations. So I mentioned United Airlines had that high-profile uh, crash in 1979. In 1981, United Airlines adopted CRM as part of their training for their flight crews. Now, the idea of human error by firefighters is hard to accept, right? It makes us uncomfortable. Nobody shows up to work and says, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to do my best to make a mistake today. That's not how it actually works. At least I hope it's not how it works. Uh, and in my experience, it's not been how it works. How it typically works, though, is we end up in a very high-risk, high-frequency or low-frequency operation, and we develop either a sense of complacency or a sense of uh, overconfidence, or we're just not really fully aware of the situation at hand. And as a result, we end up uh, sometimes being that moth to the flame, and we lose perspective of the big picture. And unfortunately... Uh, that is human error, and when our communication starts to suffer, and ultimately the operation and safety begins to suffer as well. So crew resource management really focuses in on eight key areas, planning, leadership, communication, decision-making, crew coordination, situational awareness, workload management, and then threat and error management, which is super important. And what they found out over, um, over time with FAA was that as time went on and technology increased, the machine causes of accidents in the aviation industry decreased. However, the human causes of accidents dramatically increased. So this was uh, really important. And in 1986, researchers um, started to focus in specifically on group dynamics. So they emphasized team building, decision making, situational awareness, and stress management. And they referred to this as breaking the chain of errors. And also in the 1990s, CRM grew to include the entire crew, just not cockpit resource management, but crew resource management, meaning pilots, flight attendants, dispatch, the tower, uh, the airline maintenance, and everybody else who had a hand in that, baggage handlers, everybody. Now, the reason that crew resource management evolved into uh, an arena that includes everybody is because we are all human. And there is a book by Tony Kern uh, that is titled To Air is Human, and it discusses this. And in aviation, uh, they realize that human error is a contributing factor in up to 80% of airline accidents. That is significant. And because of that, CRM focuses 
on group dynamics, interpersonal communications, and decision making. So that is right where we need to go as a fire service. And aviation has even taken it a little bit further. And they developed something called the Dirty Dozen. So the Dirty Dozen are 12 areas of focus. And these 12 areas of focus represent opportunities for bad things to happen. They're barriers um, to safety, essentially. So number one, lack of communication complacency, lack of knowledge, distractions, lack of teamwork, lack of resources, pressure, lack of assertiveness, lack of awareness, the norms, so basically your culture, and then stress and fatigue. Now, thankfully, we don't have any of those things in the fire service, no stress, no fatigue, uh, no lack of resources, no pressure, none of those things. Um, we're good, so we can pretty much end the presentation here, except uh, JK. <laughs> And I mentioned that CRM was a byproduct or a revelation at the 1990, 1979 NASA Industrial Workshop. However, that panel did not include pilots from United Airlines, Northwest, Delta, any of those things. It was made up of people from a different industry, clinical psychologists, flight surgeons. Yes, those types of people, researchers, people who are examining these um, catastrophes and trying to find out the root cause of them. So naturally, as a pilot, you said what? Hey, easy, bro. You don't know how to fly a plane. Go back to your, uh, your, your science lab and play with some more pocket protectors because we don't want you here and we don't need you here. So if anybody's going to tell me how to fly a plane, I'll be damned if it's somebody with a, with a beaker and a lab coat, right? And that was how it was initially approached. And over time, the air crews began to realize that they weren't actually losing control of the cockpit. They were gaining control of the cockpit. The uh, clinical psychologists and the researchers actually had information that was of significant use to the airline industry. So that became uh, really important as it as it uh, related back to aviation and especially how it um, relates back to the fire service because with time, the uh, FAA adopted this and uh, basically learned how to uh, manage systems and workloads more efficiently and it's currently um, required to be incorporated in the all aspects of training for the aviation um, industry through the FAA Advanced Qualification Program, and it's also required by the FAA and the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, for airlines in 185 countries. So, boom, there it is. CRM is required in aviation. It is now an industry standard, um, which goes back to Rickover's rules. Have some sort of a standard. Uh, and continue to grow that standard, which is what they're doing in aviation. Now, I mentioned that this came from outside of aviation, so initially the pilots are pretty reluctant. They're like, I don't know if I want to do this. However, uh, fire service-wise, are not too far off, so this should sound familiar to you. A couple dudes running around by the names of Dan Madrakowski and Steve Kerber um, aren't exactly uh, firefighters, firefighters per se. They work in labs, so they work um, with NIST and Underwriters Laboratories, and these guys came together and said, hey, man, Fires aren't burning like we thought they were burning. Turns out there's a lot more to this. And even though the fire service has been handing out fire science degrees for quite some time now, it's only been until recently that we actually understand what fire science is. 
However, this creates a fork in the road. You can believe the information or you can resist the information uh, because not everybody is, is super willing to change things. So we end up in the same place that those pilots uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s ended up in. And we say, hey man, why don't you stick to your lab? Don't tell me how to do my job, okay? You don't know what it's like to be me. We've always done it this way, okay? I've seen this. I've been there. I've done that. I bought the t-shirt, right? Uh, and it turns out that's all not true. So fire science is fire science. They're not telling you how to do your job. They're telling you why we should do certain things. Uh, they're telling you why things burn so fast. Um, it's not that they're burning hotter, they're burning faster. They talk about heat release rates and, and things of that nature so you can be better prepared, better equipped to do your job. Yet in the fire service we resist so hard that we create websites. We mock things like science uh, and we create these uh, Facebook groups called Hitting It Hard From The Yard or we come up with some really clever t-shirts that say thou shall never go interior or we take a photo pushing a flaming shopping cart around on the scene of a dumpster fire and create a really fancy meme that says see you can push fire eat it NIST eat it UL or uh, my my favorite fire science meme uh, goes by uh, something similar to this I don't always talk to fire science majors but when I do I tell them I would love fries with that. Right, and that's the joke. And uh, depending where you're at, there's definitely some regional bias. You tend to not believe that fire science is actually a real thing. So some pretty good articles out there about that. But it's important that we realize what crew resource management is and what it isn't. So what is it? Well, it's best represented by three related cl clusters. Number one, communication processes and decision making. Number two, team building and maintenance. And number three, workload management, and situational awareness. So CRM is a lifesaver. CRM is a way to promote teamwork. It discovers and reduces accidents and errors. It's part of our organizational learning. It creates benchmarks of best practices. We share knowledge, and when it leads to behavioral changes. And did I mention it saves lives? Yeah, so if you're not excited, if you're not automatically compelled to go lift weights and work out right now, then then let's keep going with this because by the end of this, you will. So what isn't CRM? Well, CRM is not a silver bullet cure-all approach to every issue in our organization. It is not a replacement for the proper tools, resources, or standard operating guidelines. And it is not a substitute in any way, shape, or form for the development and maintenance of strong technical skills and proficiencies. So what does CRM tell us? Well, CRM is telling us that there is no substitute for knowledge. Therefore, being safe begins with being smart. We already know that firefighting and other emergency activities are ultra-hazardous, unavoidably dangerous. So how do we make them safe? And if you look at the inside of your coat, it tells you right inside of your turnout coat, no protective garment can replace proper training and constant practice in firefighting or other emergency activities uh, where that garment is to be worn. So... If we want to be safe, we need to be smart. And crew resource management gives us that framework to be smart. Now, it's also important to understand that CRM is not some standalone, um, you know, shiny object sitting on somebody's shelf. It's actually something that in some ways is, is far less measurable than that. It's part of a system. 
It means you have to understand what your culture is. Has, you have to understand what the norms of your organization are. Uh, it talks about things like the shell model and threat and error management, things that uh, previously may be foreign to us. So when they figured out how to use CRM and how we're going to use CRM, um, what we're using it for, they had to get to the root of what was causing these incidents and these accidents from occurring in the first place. So a, a researcher by the name of Herbert Heinrich, he studied industrial safety in the early 1900s, determined um, in, in his opinion that accidents were the result of a 24 sequence of events. So the analogy of, of dominoes falling over in a line and as one falls over onto the other, it causes a continuous chain of events resulting in an accident and ultimately an injury or a death. So Heinrich likened the dominoes to unsafe conditions or unsafe acts. And then essentially their subsequent removal of, of the next series of dominoes prevents that chain reaction from occurring, thus preventing an accident and injury. So we can use five dominoes to, uh, to better illustrate this. First domino being the social environment, meaning the culture of our organization um, or the fire service in general. Number two would be the fault of the person. The fault of the person typically goes back to the culture. And the fault of the person has to do something along the lines with arrogance, ignorance, or complacency in many times. That leads to an unsafe act. The third domino, that domino falls over and hits the fourth domino, which is an actual accident. And then the weight of all those dominoes cause the last domino to fall, which is an injury. And that injury may be minor, which causes us to be further oblivious to the situation, or that, that injury could be significant, such as nine firefighters losing their life at the same time uh, as witnessed in Charleston. So the next model that becomes important is the Shell model. Shell model came out in 1972 and uh, was refined a little bit more in 1975. This one's important because you can basically go into a fire service line of duty death report, grab it, Read through with all this stuff and then apply these five things to it. So shell, what does that stand for? S is for software. H is for hardware. E is the environment we're operating in. Yeah, think about a fire environment. And then L, both L's are liveware. And they categorize that by central liveware, U, a.k.a. the pilot. And then personnel liveware, a.k.a. the rest of the crew. So that interaction, the L to L interaction, becomes super important because it's the way that you um, manage threats and prevent errors. So the last model that we're really going to look at is the Swiss cheese model. And this one's uh, a personal favorite, not just because I like food and tend to eat too much, but because it makes sense. So it illustrates uh, accident causation through four pieces of Swiss cheese. So the holes in the cheese represent an opportunity for an error to occur. So we take the first slice of Swiss cheese and we say we're going to label this one organizational influence, which sounds a lot like what? Culture. Yeah, that's right, culture. So I mentioned briefly uh, nine firefighters losing their life at one time. So this is not something where we uh, should be nitpicking or overly critical of another department or armchair quarterbacking what happened because the Charleston Fire Department has certainly learned a lot, and they learned it in the hardest way possible. Um, their new department is, is written in the blood of um, the tragedy that occurred there. So organizational influence or culture. Um, next piece of cheese is unsafe supervision. That means supervisors not acting like supervisors. That should sound familiar because that was one of Rickover's rules. Supervisors must act like supervisors. That unsafe supervision leads to people being preconditioned for unsafe acts, a.k.a. the company officer telling a firefighter 
that you wearing an SCBA is bringing us down. We don't want to go out of the building and we don't want to refill the bottles and blah, blah, blah. Just put the sponge in your mouth. You'll be fine. We've been doing it for years. Skip the air. Here's a sponge. Obviously a precondition for an unsafe act. And as those holes in the Swiss cheese line up, boom. Catastrophe, right? We have an accident. And uh, and that basically uh, leads to a situation where somebody is either severely injured and or fatally wounded. Uh, and we have these line of duty deaths that pop up. So clearly we don't want that, so we got to identify threats and we got to manage any errors associated with that, meaning we have to know about threat and error management. So here's some more numbers for you, and these are interesting numbers. Would you believe that 98% of flights face threats? Yep, me neither. I wouldn't have guessed that one. And here's another warm and fuzzy uh, number for you. Errors occur on 82% of flights. Whoa, right? So threat and error management model, I guess that's pretty important. And, uh, you know, this is representing so everything involved um, with your flight. So there's so many different areas here to get you from gate to gate successfully and to get your baggage checked and everything else. There's a lot that goes into that. So we're not nitpicking the crew resource or the uh, airline industry. Rather, we are advocating for the adoption of crew resource management because the airline industry knows this better than anybody else. They have witnessed a 70% decrease in crashes since the inception of CRM. So we know about high-frequency, high-risk, high-frequency, low-risk events and non-discretionary time versus discretionary time. Um, and that means we have to plan for the threats, right? Both expected and unexpected. Because if we don't, we'll never be able to manage those errors. So um, in the fire service, we have everything from rapidly changing fire conditions, smoke explosions, flashovers, etc., to water supply, bad hydrants, bad pumps, people not available, um, all those things meaning we plan for the threats and we manage our errors. In, in the fire service, if you were to think about a threat, right, we would have um, a building on fire, right? So all the things that accompany that response would be a threat as it relates to the environment um, or the equipment or the personnel. So uh, house fire, we have high heat, we have low visibility, we have byproducts of combustion. We have the effect of the fire on the structure, meaning, well, you better know building construction, you better understand lightweight versus conventional or legacy style construction, and you better understand utilities and be able to properly identify um, the gas utilities, electrical utilities, and you better understand how to drive to and from because the apparatus is big and heavy and um, difficult to maneuver. All those represent threats, and the water coming out of your hose line is a threat because your nozzle could fail, your hose could burst, uh, the pump could fail on the apparatus, the supply line could rupture, um, or the hydrant might not work. All threats. Errors, though, come after the threat manifests itself. So now that pump failed, what do you do next? That could be an error. <clears throat> your lack of ability to perceive the fire um, as uh, where it actually is, as advanced as it is, that becomes an error. So we identify critical factors to facilitate that. Now in aviation, they have a lot of threats as well. One of those threats is bird strikes, and that brings us back to the title of this class. The title of this class is Crew Resource Management, Managing the Bird Strikes. Well, when's the last time our fire truck's been uh, hit by a bird? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an area of aviation that represents a high-frequency, high-risk event. Bird strikes. 
So for the rest of this little study here, we're going to look at 25 years in time, from 1990 to 2015. Fire service-wise, we're going to talk about information from the United States Fire Administration, NIOSH, and NFPA. In the world of aviation, we're going to talk about studies conducted by the FAA. So 1990 to 2015, I just told you that 90% of flights, 98% um, of flights have some threat. Well, one of those threats happens to be bird strikes, right? So over this 25-year period, how many birds uh, struck airplanes? 50, 100, I don't know, 1,000? Nope, nope, much higher than that. So again, for our uh, number crunchers out there, 177,269 strike reports, 51,826 in the last five years alone, 97% of those bird strikes occurred at or below 3,500 feet, and 73% of those were at or below 500 feet. Why is that important? Because that represents less discretionary time. That is a critical flight time, your time of climb, your time of descent. You don't want a, a loss of engine failure or a loss of power or reduction of power during that time because you have less time to manage that threat, meaning more time, in some weird way, to develop an error because now you're reacting quickly and suddenly. Um, and over this time, um, the highest recorded bird strike was at 24,000 feet. You might ask yourself, what bird is capable of flying that high? Well, to find the answer to that riddle, I would suggest that you talk to a firefighter and nature lover, um, David DeSlover. David DeSlover is well-versed in bird watching, uh, amongst other things, and uh, his love for the outdoors and his love for nature is very apparent, uh, and, and he would love to tell you what the highest flying birds are uh, in, in the world, and it'll blow your mind. So... Over this 25-year period, 177,269 strike reports, there were 26 recorded human fatalities and 68 aircraft were destroyed. So obviously um, not a good thing, especially when we just said that their acceptable loss is zero. Zero airplanes, zero humans. So of 177,269 actual documented strikes, we have 26 human fatalities that could be contributed to that. And it's important to know that no plane is immune to this. And when we talk about the types of aircraft from a single uh, prop little plane all the way up to the biggest of jet airliners, no airline is immune, meaning for the fire service bird strikes, no fire department is immune. So we may have the small department, small rural department that's a single prop propeller jet or propeller plane, and we have those, those bigger uh, operations that are more of a corporate jet all the way up to the major metropolitan um, departments that represent those jumbo jets, Chicago, New York, L.A., Detroit, uh, Houston, Dallas, right? All those big departments. And then we have the departments that are built like Metro Airport and built like Norfolk Township, the fighter jets of the world, the F-18 Hornets, the Blue Angels. And yes, even the Blue Angels are susceptible to bird strikes. If you don't believe it, I'll show you the photo myself. Um, so we're talking a lot about bird strikes and we talked about uh, fatalities in terms of 26 human fatalities, whether it's a part of the flight crew or civilian, over that 25-year period. So fire service-wise, we're going to go ahead and correlate that over to our bird strikes as it relates to fires. And firefighter fatalities 
and civilian fire fatalities. So in the world of firefighter fatalities over that same time frame, how many firefighters were killed in the line of duty? I don't know, 100, 500? Shoot, 1,000. Wrong again, right? 2,590 firefighters were killed from 1990 to 2015. Now, what's the cost of a line of duty death? There's a financial cost. There's a morale cost. There's a credibility and a career cost. There's a reputation cost. So why do we keep writing these checks? Why do we allow 2,600 firefighters to be killed over a 25-year time period? So what's the cost of an aviation accident? Well, it's roughly $100 million. Uh, loss of revenue, loss of employee productivity, disruption in service, poor customer perception, loss of reputation, all of which is unacceptable. You want to talk about unacceptable loss? This came out through NASA. What is the acceptable loss in NASA? Is one space shuttle acceptable? Absolutely not. Is two space shuttle crashes acceptable? No. And we can prove that because we don't have space shuttles anymore in the United States. Two crashes, zero acceptable loss, and now we're done until we can find a better way of doing it that represents zero loss. And talk about a high-risk, low-frequency operation. They're strapping people into shuttles fueled by giant rocket boosters and launching them into outer space. So with that being said, uh, we should be able to predict the hazards we're facing and be able to prevent things a little bit better. So I thought, well, what the hell? Let's just correlate this back to aviation and uh, let's say we had an aircraft that was capable of holding 371 passengers. That's a pretty big aircraft. And let's say that that aircraft at some point fell out of the sky and everybody on board uh, subsequently perished. How many airlines or how many airplanes um, would that take? Well, it would take seven fully loaded jumbo jets with 371 passengers, passengers strapped in falling out of the sky in that 25 years. Would that be enough to represent um, in? An unnecessary risk. Well, I guess it depends. Is it uh, is it the same type of aircraft? Well, yeah, it is. We all look the same. We're all firefighters. So I think that would be enough to ground it. I mean, it grounded the Concorde. Uh, that was a pretty neat jet, but guess what? They were falling out of the sky, so nobody flies one anymore. So one would say, okay, we got to prevent this from happening. So I got it. Let's just be safe. Let's just uh, let's just dial it back, pull the reins back, and uh, and naturally the numbers will go down. Except we're forgetting about a key audience here. That's our passengers right? Or the civilians. So the same time frame from 1990 to 2015, what did the NFPA have to say about civilian fire fatalities during that time, right? 25 years. So we had 26 people killed in aviation due to bird strikes, their threats um, during flight. We had 2,600 firefighters killed during that time, um, the threats that they faced during uh, our, our incidents and through our emergency actions um, on emergency scenes. What about the civilian bird strikes? So fire fatalities that occur only during fires. We're not talking about technical rescues and water rescues and hazardous materials calls and uh, cardiac arrests and coronary artery disease and strokes and all these other things. We're talking about one thing. We're talking about fires. So during this time, I just told you we loaded up an airplane, 371 people. Took seven of those airplanes falling out of the sky to represent the 2,600 firefighter fatalities in 25 years. How many airplanes would we have to load up to represent the civilian fire fatalities over that same 25-year time span? You might want to sit down because this one can knock you over. We would have to load up 212 jumbo jets carrying 371 passengers each, all of which would have to fall out of the sky and burst in the flames basically 
losing everybody on board of all 212 of those aircraft, meaning over 80,000 lives lost. 80,000. That's how many lives have been lost in fires in, in the civilian population from 1990 to 2015. Now, we happen to have a resident numbers cruncher by the name of Christopher Kalinske. Now, Christopher Kalinske is an extremely bright, extremely capable individual, and he did some research on this and found out that in the 1970s, prior to the release of the America's Burning Report, um, that civilian fire fatalities peaked around 7,000 fire fatalities a year. Since then, now that we're several years past that, we're down to 3,500 fire, fire, I'm sorry, civilian fire fatalities a year. So it has been cut in half. But as he also so astutely pointed out, are these numbers subject to change? Because what happened after the recession? We gutted fire prevention bureaus as a fire service across the country. We've reduced and or eliminated the prevention bureaus. So would we assume or could we assume that those numbers are going to go back up? The building industry is stronger than ever. Um, and, uh, and, and that is important to know because their lobbying, their activism, the financial resources they can put into these things uh, represent more opportunity uh, for threat for the civilian population. So just some other really interesting um, statistics that came out of that report as well. Uh, in 2015, the United States fire loss uh, clock basically... Uh, the fire department responded to a fire every uh, a, a fire department somewhere in the United States responded to a fire every 23 seconds. Uh, once one home structure fire was reported every 86 seconds. One civilian fire injury was reported every 34 minutes. One civilian fire death occurred every two hours and 40 minutes. And then one outside or other fire was reported every 52 seconds. And one highway vehicle fire was reported every three minutes and one second. So, a lot of opportunity for bird strikes there. So we've talked a lot about bird strikes. And uh, what does that mean for the fire service? Well, we just told you all these key stats on uh, how often we're being called to respond just to fires. And in aviation, they're seeing the same demand. In fact, uh, they're seeing more of it than we are. So in the United States, um, the Air Traffic Controllers Association put together some information, some key stats in aviation. And uh, these are pretty mind-blowing. So what is acceptable loss? Zero. What is the potential for risk? Well, listen to these numbers. Potential for risk. On any given day, there are over 70,000 flights, 23,911 of which are commercial flights, meaning they're carrying passengers or lots of cargo. And with this, there may be over 7,000 aircraft in the sky in the United States at any given time. The United States represents 5 million square miles of airspace and monitors 26 million square miles of oceanic airspace, therefore representing 70% of the world's airspace. And that's based, from the, uh, based on the National Association of Air Traffic Controllers, uh, so NATCA.org. It also represents a lot of potential loss, as it's a $1.5 trillion impact on the U.S. economy and it's responsible, the aviation industry uh, has 11.8 million aviation-related jobs. So, obviously, um, the potential for risk is there, and the acceptable loss would be zero. So, fire service-wise, 
Let's talk about our bird strikes. We know the five leading causes of firefighter line of duty deaths. We have inadequate risk versus gain assessment, lack of incident management system, lack of adequate SOPs or SOGs, lack of effective incident communications, and lack of effective training. So I have identified a bird that corresponds to each one of those. So the first bird is situational awareness. That's inadequate risk versus gain assessment. For lack of incident management system, I assign the bird of command to that. For lack of adequate SOPs or SOGs, I said that's all inclusive of the other all the birds that we're using. That's a combination of everything. For lack of effective incident communications, I put communications. And lack of effective training is training. So we're going to use four birds by the names of situational awareness, command, communications, and training. And if we were uh, to strike one of those birds, the situational awareness bird, um, during our flight or during our incident, we might be able to outmanage that. If we strike the communication bird alone, we might be able to outmanage that. But you know what? When all these birds strike at one time, you can overmanage it. It becomes nearly impossible, and we have to pay with major loss, a.k.a. one's career, a.k.a. one's lives, a.k.a. multiple people's lives, a.k.a. civilians too. So, with that being said, the rest of this class is going to focus in on those bird strikes. We're going to go in order. Situational awareness, command, communications, and training. And I'm going to tell you case studies from the aviation industry as it relates back to case studies in the fire service. I'm going to give you a list of best practices for each one. And then at the end, if you order now, we're going to throw something special in. That's right, just pay separate shipping and handling. We're going to talk about two bird strikes that a lot of people don't talk about. That being physical health, physical well-being, and mental health, mental well-being. So stay tuned. At the very end of this uh, this whole module, we'll have several different podcasts for you to click on. We'll go through these one at a time in a way that makes sense and gives you the tools you need. And with that in mind, Go ahead and strap yourself in. Get ready for the ride. This is going to be a fun journey. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy your flight.